and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, the healthcare podcast where we talk everything value-based care with the top experts in the field. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm Sarah Matusik, a senior consultant at Day Health Strategies, your host, and I'm here today with my colleague, Lisette Roman, who is a consultant here at Day Health Strategies. Thanks, Sarah. So today we have a, a great episode where we'll be talking about addiction uh, and what the role is for the healthcare system in helping patients that have substance use disorder. Um, this is a widespread problem, right? We know that it has far-reaching implications for individuals, for their families, um, and of course for our healthcare system. Drug overdoses killed about 70,000 Americans in 2017. That's a record number, unfortunately, that reflects a 10%, well, almost 10% rise since 2016 and a 300% increase since 1999. I mean, that's, that's pretty humbling. Um, overdose deaths are more frequent than deaths from HIV, car crashes, or even gun violence um, at each of their peaks. And there's a huge cost to this all, right? So substance use disorder costs the healthcare system billions annually. That's billions with a B. Um, this cost comes from overdoses, yes, but also from emergency department visits, inpatient hospital stays, um, and of course a whole host of associated disorders, uh, HIV, hepatitis C, and then you know cardiac GI, liver, kidney, pulmonary system problems. It's a long list. Um, many patients with substance use disorder also have co-occurring disorders like diabetes or a behavioral health condition. Um, it's, it's really easy to see how this mushrooms and drives poor healthcare outcomes and increased healthcare costs. Right. And because substance use disorders affect people and their families and the healthcare system so significantly, healthcare providers really do need to think about how they can address this issue. As you'll hear in the interview today, there's a lot that needs to be done to improve treatment for addiction, but there's also a lot of evidence-based interventions that can be more widely used. These are things that are already available that we know work. And one promising intervention is called medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. Um, there are multiple pharmaceuticals that have been approved by the FDA that doctors can actually prescribe to patients that aid in the recovery from addiction. And in order to prescribe these medications, doctors, um, which includes primary care doctors, just need to apply for a special waiver that requires them to complete eight hours of education and training. The good news is that these medications can be extremely effective. In a survey of patients and physicians, they reported um, an average of an 80% reduction in opioid use with just one medication called buprenorphine. And even more, there were significant increases in employment for these patients that ended up taking these drugs. Our guest today, Dr. Corey Waller, is a national addiction expert. Uh, Dr. Waller is an actively practicing physician um, and a principal at the consulting firm Health Management Associates. Uh, he's also chairman of the Legislative Advocacy Committee for the American Society of Addiction Medicine. 
Uh, we sit down with Dr. Waller today to talk about addressing addiction on many levels, from health system changes to medical school curriculum changes to goals that ACOs um, can have to effectively address substance use disorder in their population. So let's go ahead and get to the interview. We are very excited to be sitting down today with Dr. Corey Waller, who is a physician, um, board certified in emergency medicine, addiction, and pain, sort of a unicorn of sorts. Um, He's still actively practicing and is also uh, a full-time principal at Health Management Associates. Um, So I'm not sure how you have time to do all those things. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, But could you give our audience just a little bit of an overview of who you are? What's your story and your background, just so we can kind of learn more about you? Sure. No, I appreciate that. And I think my wife would agree fully uh, that I actually don't have time for all those things, but uh, they somehow still seem to get done. I come at this a little sideways in that I started in grad school as a neuromolecular biologist. And from that is where I kind of focused a lot of my work throughout medical school and residency. But I was also somebody like a lot of my friends and colleagues that couldn't pick a sport, so to speak, in medical school. So I liked everything. I enjoyed, you know, surgery and OB and internal medicine and that. So I chose the uh, ultimate specialty of non-specialists, which is emergency medicine, um, which was great because I got to do all of those things. But I found after completing a really fun residency in Philadelphia at Thomas Jefferson and taking my first job at a level one trauma center in Michigan, uh, that about three months in, I hated my job a lot uh, because the things that I had learned, uh, like how to take care of a bullet wound in the box or how to do a thoracotomy, and those are things that are super fun if you work in an inner city hospital, but when you move anywhere else, they're not really applicable. And the things that I needed to be taught that I wasn't, I was failing at miserably. And those are, how do you deal with a patient who has emotional suffering? How do you deal with a patient with chronic pain or addiction? I just thought they were angry and hated me and they came in just to bug me. I mean, by the end, I just didn't want to work shifts. I got frustrated and I actually became pretty mean. I was condescending to patients. I was frustrated every day when I showed up to work. Um, Talked about them as, quote, those patients. And uh, my... Friends and my wife made a a pretty um, startling evaluation of me that I needed to do something else um, at that point because this was not going to be continuable. And and so I did. I decided to actually pick those patients who frustrated me the most and see them on Wednesdays. I, I asked them to not schedule me on Wednesdays for six months. And I ran a little clinic in the urgent care for just that subset of patients who were those high frequency visitors. And... In doing so, I learned a lot about who they were and what they were doing and why they were there and um, recognized that I didn't know any of this stuff. I did not understand social correlates, early life trauma. I didn't understand addiction or chronic pain or mental health disorders, and I just was never taught. And that immediately flipped the frame for me in a sense of instead of seeing them as frustration and anger I actually saw these as just symptoms of their their situation in life and their more symptoms of the disease entity of addiction or uh, their mental health disorder, and immediately it depersonalized it. And when that happened, I was able to connect more with those patients, and I wanted more. So I went and got trained in addiction and really enjoyed that uh, training, but I found as I started seeing a lot of patients with addiction, this is back in 2010, 
they all had pain complaints and I wasn't really trained enough to help understand that, which is when I got a lot of extra training in pain um, to be able to, to do that and did some interventions and intrathecal pumps and stimulators and found out that I have colleagues who like that a lot more than I do. So I just continue to refer to them uh, for that. <laughs> but, but in the end, that's really what kind of got me to where I am now, which is figuring out how do we build systems of care so that it's just a normal thing for somebody to show up and get the appropriate care they need, whether or not they have a mental health disorder, a substance use disorder, chronic pain, cognitive disorders, or really whatever version of suffering they bring to the table. And, and one that can help to well, not hate their jobs so much, since that seems to be a pretty big issue in medicine nowadays. So I thank you for that. That was really helpful to hear sort of your trajectory. I didn't actually know that you were neuromolecular bio. Um, so I would love to take this up to like the 10,000 foot view and hear your thoughts in general about how we should be addressing substance use disorder at the health system level. Who should be doing it? How should it get done? Um, it's kind of a big question, but um, we could start there. No, I, I think it's actually, it seems like a big question. It seems very daunting. It feels impossible sometimes, but the reality is, is it's no different than saying, how do we treat our diabetics? Because if you look at it as um, how you treat other chronic diseases, it's really no different. Addiction is just another chronic disease that we seem to have the National Institute on Drug Addiction, who's done a lot of good work for us to understand the neurobiology of this disease and the fact that it has a chronicity to it that is predictable and behaviors that are predictable and treatments that work. So if we looked at it like we did for cardiology, if a patient walks into an emergency department with chest pain, we have a myriad of evaluations and tests that we can do for this patient that determine risk. And that risk allows us to know, do I need to put them in a cath lab? Do I need to admit them to the ICU? Do they need a bypass? Do they need some reassurance for their uh, anxiety? And then I just send them you know, to go follow up with their primary care doc. We can do all of those things. And we can actually do those in pretty much every hospital within the United States, even if you're rural or remote, you have a pathway for somebody who shows up to the ER with chest pain. And if it's a scary version of chest pain, they're having an acute myocardial infarction, we'll even put them on a helicopter and fly them somewhere to get, get this help. So we need to start looking at addiction like this because we know exactly what needs to happen to patients who have an opioid use disorder. We have tools to tell us that they need to be in the ICU or that they need to be in a residential facility, or need to go to an opioid treatment program, we can do this. We don't have to guess. It's not a gut feeling. It's a matter of you fill out this you know, validated tool. It tells you what it is. You can utilize other basic fundamental things like a urine drug screen to help us understand intensity or, or risk, but we know how to do this. But instead of a lab test and instead of an EKG, um, it's a conversation with the patient and learning a little bit more about the trajectory of their own disease and how they got there and where they are now. If we do this, then what we have is no matter where a patient shows up, if they show up to a primary care office or to an emergency department, then we have a set of interventions that are predictable, that people are trained in, and we walk down the path. And the path leads to getting a patient into the right level of treatment at the right time. And it's not pounding that square peg into the round hole over and over and over again by thinking that there's one single intervention that fixes this. So you mentioned the the need to have a conversation um, that you know, there are ways to treat this issue. Um, 
how come the current isn't prepared to handle this? And um, are we seeing a change in sort of residency training programs that are increasing sort of the, the workforce ability to handle this as they're coming out into the workforce now? As a whole? No. Why is that? Like, that's one of the major barriers that we have seen and been hearing about. You know, why is that? And do you think, and how do you think we should overcome it? Well, you know, you can look at the 30,000 foot view and have a conversation about is the way that we train our future doctors, the best way that we should be training people, especially now what we know about, um, you know, academic knowledge onboarding and the way that people do it. And the amount of stuff that we learn in medical school that maybe doesn't get utilized appropriately down the road. And or you could look very specifically at, can we at least get them eight hours worth of training for addiction? <laughs> you know, can we give them the basic thing? Because in a family practice, um, you're going to end up with 10 to 20% of your population that has a substance use disorder. And that's in any primary care office. If you're a level one trauma center, the chances are that you have 60 to 70% of the people laying in a bed right now that have a substance use disorder and that's not even talking about tobacco use disorder. If that's the case, then we're up in the 90s. So we, we know it's there. And yet we are perpetuating this myth that we can be an ostrich about it and put our heads in the sand and continue to move on. And we'll get to it when we get to it because it's really important to learn about a pheochromocytoma over and over again, despite that being truly the unicorn in, uh, in, in healthcare. I've seen one. I'll never see another one. Gosh, yeah. So that's uh, so. There's definitely a, you know a barrier in just. I, I think that's that's great. I'll call that the ostrich barrier. <laughs> um, what other barriers are sort of keeping us from handling this problem appropriately? Well, when I talk to medical schools or residency programs, uh, one of the issues that I find is that they're not recognizing that you don't have to teach everything in medical school or everything in residency or everything in practice. It is a continuum of knowledge. And so we're, the medical school should take on the 101. We should just talk about the neuroscience of addiction when we're learning about the brain. We should talk about alcohol use disorder when we talk about the liver. We should talk about you know, um, heroin use disorder when we talk about endocarditis and valvular infections and infectious disease when we talk about hepatitis C and that and, and, and learn about the environment in which these things happen and how we prevent them from coming on, that should just be incorporated into the standard learning pathway within medical school. And then when you get to residency, if you're, if you're working in any clinical space, it doesn't matter which one, this is going to be an issue. If you're seeing anything that relates to trauma, whether you're ortho, your general surgery, your trauma surgery, your neurosurgery, a large portion of your patients have a substance use disorder and are in your emergency department or your operating room or your ICU because of an injury related to that substance use disorder. And we're still not offering them treatment even after we fix their epidural bleed or, you know, we do a thoracotomy and sew up a lung laceration. You know, we're still not treating the disease that caused the lung laceration. And this is, a, this is an issue. So anyone who is really patient-facing should at least have 201-level training in how you appropriately screen and then identify risk in these patients, and at the minimum, know where to refer. Because even a primary care doctor who knows the least ever about cardiology, they know a cardiologist to send them to, and they send them for basic stuff. And then there are some primary care docs who love congestive heart failure patients, and they see really complex, difficult, complex patients. And that's fine. There's going to be a heterogeneity about it. It's not you know, a basic, but you should learn at medical school the basics, just like we're in. 
And then in residency, the, the real clinical pearls of how you identify and treat and stabilize these patients. And then throughout our CME right now, I just read, uh, took my emergency medicine boards. On that board exam, there was not one question about addiction. Really? There were a large number of toxidrome questions about a patient comes in and has an intoxication syndrome, but not in the context of what drove that intoxication to the point where they show up in the emergency department. There wasn't one question about treatment for addiction. There was a question about the treatment for withdrawal, but not a question about the disease that really led to the withdrawal happening. So this has to change fundamentally. The minute you say on your board exam, there will be this percentage of your test required for you to have knowledge on, people will learn it. That's one thing we're good at is knowing what we have to take a test for and what to prepare for. But until we get it on step one, step two, step three, board exams, then quite honestly, the motivation for people to embed it in their training programs or for people to learn it on their own will not be there. So we certainly need some change at the USMLE level. Um, so what? Let's let's shift gears just a little bit. Um, this podcast. Uh, in general, has been largely about accountable care, value-based care, however you want to define that. But the idea of provider groups, you know, really coordinating um, efforts and and actually taking more risk financially for patients, so they have a little bit more incentive to do what I think is this type of work. So, what do you think are some realistic goals for, let's say, an accountable care organization or some other group trying to do work like this vis-a-vis addiction? Well, for accountable care organizations, it's really the sweet spot of ACOs. I mean, this is what you should be doing. This is the reason you become an ACO. And if you become an accountable care organization, I mean, what you should do is listed in the first word, accountable. And that means you have to be accountable for all the things that show up to your door and accountable to do a good job because you know if you don't, then you're going to bleed out the back door. And this is a real issue uh, with a lot of ACOs. And the reason a lot of the pioneer ACOs and early ACOs completely failed is they had no plan to handle their high utilization, high cost patients. Now, those high cost, high utilization patients, when you drill down, they either have a substance use disorder, a mental health disorder, poorly treated chronic pain, or a cognitive disorder. And they'll say, well, I have a dialysis patient. There are a lot of dialysis patients who are actually not... Um, that expensive. It's predictable. You know what that's going to look like. The ones that are really expensive are the ones that miss their their follow-ups because they have a mental health disorder and they're, uh, they have anxiety and they don't want to leave and they're scared to come in. Or you know, So a lot of these things have to be dealt with in the four areas that we have the least amount of capability in most healthcare systems. So if you decide to be an ACO, you financially cannot decide to not evaluate and treat patients with these disorders or they will eat you for breakfast. In your work over the last several years, um, just working with either organizations or health systems trying to help them build out this area or um, actually just more in the micro level um, in in your your work as a clinician, uh, what types of success stories have you seen? And I don't know if you've got two on your mind, but like it would be really fun to hear maybe something a little bit more high level like system level and maybe one that's a little more on the ground level, if that makes sense. Sure. No, I mean, I think that most of the work in addiction has been at the program level. And so when people say we built an addiction treatment system, I go, well, describe that to me. And they're like, well, we have a Suboxone clinic. And I was like, well, that's great. I mean, you've expanded the access to treatment uh, for a subset of the population as an opioid use disorder who Suboxone or buprenorphine is the best mode of treatment. 
I always remind them, however, that opioid use disorder is the easiest addiction to treat it by far. And yet we're really failing at that. And there are three FDA approved medications for that. And we need to have access to all three. But you got to start where you start. And most specialties were built over 30 or 40 years, you know, and recognizing that we can't wait that long because we have 70,000 people dying a year of overdose. And that's a real problem. I mean, when it is the number one cause of injury related death in the country, and specifically the number one cause of, of death under 50, I mean, this is something we need to actually build systems for. We can't just hope and wish and think that we're going to see rainbows and it's going to get better the next day. I mean, this is a concerted effort. And I have seen some large scale systems put together um, the workforce in order to be able to evaluate these patients and uh, to treat them. I have to say, I still haven't seen a large healthcare system really attack this. I do see this as a golden opportunity for somebody to be the national leader in owning this, figuring out the payment, the pathway, the treatment, the evaluation, and getting these patients better and actually being the gold standard for which everybody else tries to be. That is an open place right now for a health system. And you know these large managed care systems uh, while they may roll out uh, treatment systems, uh, whether it be one that's on the East Coast or the West Coast, the fidelity with which they deliver these services are really all over the place. And you can't predict like you would be if you showed up to an ER with chest pain that you're going to get aspirin in a beta blocker and in a cath lab within 90 minutes. There's not a rigidity to it. Because I know if I miss an aspirin on a chest pain patient that had a cath and, and I didn't give it the next morning, I'm getting a call from somebody in QI asking me why I didn't give an aspirin. So we need to start adding a lot of quality to this and a lot of um, mechanics to the way that it's delivered so that we can have a predictable pathway. And so on the big system level, I just haven't seen it. I mean, there's some stunning programs around the country, but even a lot of those programs are built around an individual. And, you know, I... So I built a program at the hospital system that I lived at, um, and it was Dr. Waller's clinic, which is the worst thing you could ever do to build an intervention that has your name in it. Um, and But at the same time, as we started to expand that and add people to it, we got to the point where we had a system in place. Um, but even with the mediocre, I would say mediocre to okay system, when I left, it really went through a lot of turmoil. And... And it shouldn't be that. We should have a robust system, just like you would if you have an orthopedic surgery program. You know, orthos are going to retire. Some are going to, you know, just decide to go somewhere else. But you know what? You don't stop fixing ankles. You still actually do the surgeries. You identify the patients. You have the uh, you know, post-operative pathways and the med surge floors. All those things are set up. And so you just recruit and you bring them in and you just keep moving through. So the robust systems that I have seen, I've seen some hospitals do great with alcohol. I've seen some do a really good job. Um, in Oakland, uh, there's a great emergency department pathway. In uh, San Diego, there's a great pathway for Project Shout for um, hospital-based uh, programs at UCSD. And as we start to expand out to where programs start to connect and become a system, that's where I think we're going to hit it. And right now is really a rare time that we're going to have some capitalization to be able to do that within the healthcare system, unlike really anything we've ever seen for a specific disease entity. What would you say to the clinician, and I'm sure this happens a lot in your line of work, um, that says, this is too hard, I can't do this, or the problem's too big? I would say that uh, we've thought that about a lot of things throughout history. 
and they turned out to be pretty easy. Uh, we thought that about HIV. Uh, we thought that about um, cardiovascular disease before uh, DeBakey started doing bypass. We thought uh, that about a uh, number of things throughout history, and this is, this is no different. Because it's foreign, it seems complex and it seems difficult. Because we attribute personalization to the behavior of patients, it's frustrating and it creates anger. And addiction, because of the stigma associated with it, always feels a little more daunting. And that stigma really is related to the fact that almost every single human being knows another human being who has addiction. And a lot of times they've been hurt by them. They've been injured emotionally by them. They've been injured financially by them. They've had family members die of this. And there's resentment. And there's this countertransference that happens that makes us not want to fix it, almost as a punishment for those who have this disease. And I have seen this happen in a pervasive way um, until they treat their first patient. This is the most amazing stuff that you can do in medicine. It's rare, really rare in medicine that I can see a patient on a Monday, start treatment on that Monday, and on Tuesday, they come back and they're happier than they have ever been. It is amazing the changes that you can make for people. And to not allow yourself to feel that as a doctor, especially in this world of RVUs and managed care, you are depriving yourself from really the, the best I have ever felt in medicine. And in emergency medicine, I've resuscitated a ton of people. I've saved a bunch of lives and little kids and intubated this and done that and thoracotomy this. You know, I will tell you the best group of people that I've ever treated are those with addiction because when you get them better, and you can, in fact, 70% uh, effective rates for opioid use disorder just by using the evidence, 70%. We can barely get 40% for diabetes. So come on, this is something that once you actually just onboard the, mo the small amount of capability to do it, an eight-hour course, a waiver. We take eight-hour courses for breakfast in medicine. We do this all the time. I mean, I had a friend of mine who watched like 32 hours of IT stuff so he could learn a little more about his EHR. I mean, really? And we won't <laughs> learn about something that, you know, can decrease the mortality rate of a patient by 50%. So we have to get past the emotional wall that we have put up on this. And that's mostly what drives this frustration. And collectively recognize that the people we are treating are those that live in our communities. And we are not just treating individuals. This is something that is required for community stabilization in the high schools and elementary schools even now. I mean, eight and 10-year-olds are starting to um, have access to these drugs at this point. And if we don't build these systems, quite honestly, shame on us because it is so treatable. And, uh, and we're making the decision actively to withhold treatment for a treatable disease that has FDA approval and payment behind it. It's a great note to end on. Very motivational. Um, I think we should have like a, a, a an applause like thing come up <laughs> electronically. Um, so thank you so much for joining us um, today. And uh, hopefully we will have you back again someday. Um, but in the meantime, we'll be tracking your work and the work uh, on substance use disorders at large since there's a lot going on around the country. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I think that we, you know, based on our work with providers, payers, and ACOs, um, we, we really share his optimism. There is evidence-based treatment for substance use disorder 
And we're excited to see some real changes that actually address this far-reaching issue. I totally agree with that. And thinking about our focus on accountable care, I believe that ACOs or really any organization attempting to do whole person care really could start thinking about how they're addressing addiction and develop a clear strategy for their own organization. And even beyond their own strategy, they could think about how to partner with state governments and other healthcare organizations like insurers or other providers or community-based organizations to address this issue in a more meaningful uh, and maybe larger scale manner. And together, they might think about doing a better job at ensuring that addiction service lines are being developed or ensuring that financials are aligned to incentivize the healthcare systems to actually address this issue, which until now really hasn't been done. So I think that this was a great conversation with Dr. Waller, and I look forward to future conversations with other healthcare experts. Thank you again for joining us on Unlocking Accountable Care, and we will see you next time. If you are interested in learning more about accountable care or how organizations can succeed in today's healthcare system, please visit our website, www.dayhealthstrategies.com. Check out our blog, follow us on Twitter, and join our mailing list. We regularly post content relevant to current healthcare issues and overcoming challenges in delivering value-based care. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Direction and editing by Max Blumenthal. Additional support and research by Emily Eibel and Nico Lehman. Our producer is Rosemary Day. A special thanks to Purple Planet Music for the use of their songs. <laughs>